Father, we thank you that we as your children, who sometimes are the ones screaming, are so well cared for. You know exactly what we need. You guide us. You teach us. And as this message puts the emphasis on us leading our children, uh, we're focusing on the adults. But we need your help to understand this, to have it properly applied to our hearts, to not be distracted, uh, that the um, activity in the back would, would be um, mellow, that the teachers would be able to accomplish making disciples rather than just babysitting, and that we could enjoy getting, getting to know you better. For so many that I'm finding out that are listening online, uh, so many that I know, I thank you for that. I encourage you to, to bless them as they too get into your word. And just use this time, Father, to make us more like your son. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We are looking at Deuteronomy chapter 6 today. Just a reminder, if you were to go online, I know Pat Stone gets this regularly, but I think she, oh, you are out here today. Um, This little blurb that's on Sermon Audio uh, that you can go to, I write up a kind of a um, overview of what the message is about and try to incorporate the outline into that overview So if you're confused, it can give you a little more help. It's not in there until typically it all gets posted together. So I don't know if that's today or tomorrow when that typically comes out. But you're welcome to check all that out. We have been going through a series. Today is number six. Next week will be the final. um, And yet it's just the beginning, right? As we put this into practice in our lives. We looked at valuing our children in Psalm 127. Loving them, Proverbs 20, verse 7, especially for fathers. Guiding them in Ephesians 6. Disciplining them in Proverbs 22. Releasing them last week, we looked at um, Abraham and Isaac and the faith of both of them in Genesis 22 as they had to trust that God's will is best. And today we're looking at the aspect number 6 of leading in Deuteronomy 6. Uh, just four ver- or four to nine, but just a few verses And they're always out of context when I have to do these topicals, which is why I don't like teaching topically. Like teaching through a book, so you're always bringing in the context and what's going on there. But you need to look around, bring in the context, so you're going to tell me right now what is in chapter 5 of Deuteronomy. The what? Ten Commandments. And they're being repeated. Deuteronomy is two words put together. It means second law. It's the children of the parents who died off because they weren't faithful. They didn't trust God. They didn't obey. Their children are now being instructed, re-instructed by God himself with the giving of the law. It's repeated in chapter 5, and then he moves into this section here with specific instructions of how to lead. What's missing today with most parents are strong convictions. The reason I know that's true in biblical convictions is because hearts are not deeply committed to God. There's too many distractions. Church is kind of optional. Even this morning, if you were honest with yourself, some of you would admit you thought twice about coming. Don't raise hands. I don't need any confessions at this point. Just between you and God. But but you really wrestled with this because you woke up and you weren't feeling good. Or you, you had so many other things that you have to get done. Or whatever it may be. And so God isn't the primary focus of your life because he has set up the assembling of ourselves together. And in spite of COVID and all the struggles we've had for a year, we've had this opportunity to continue and find a balance between what the world says and what we fear physically and what God says and how we can trust him to take care of us. And so we've been wrestling with that, and we're still kind of working that out. But as we look at this today, the world, the flesh, and the devil are constantly fighting us. All the distractions that are around us, the excuses that we make up for ourselves, and then the exceptions that the devil seems to make very simple and very easy to follow. But salvation, true salvation, what we're going to kind of focus on a little bit this morning, is a love affair with God. So that's why it's only for an hour, an hour, hour and a half on Sunday mornings, right? Is that how your marriage works? Don't answer that question either. That might get you in deeper trouble. I always talk about being engaged. You couldn't get enough. You couldn't spend enough time. Dad had to keep separating you, giving you curfews, making sure things were being done on the up and up. And you'd run around, and she'd always be flashing her ring and talking about when the wedding date is, and where's John? 
Not that John, but the, the one that's going to be married in November. What? Did he get a permission slip for that? Okay. I told you, that's exactly how it works. It's hard to be separated. And then you go through the seven years of, of marriage, the first seven years, and pretty soon it's hard to keep them together. Which anyway, that's another message we're not going to go into this morning. But this love affair with God is what he wants us focused on 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It is the answer to all of our problems. When we're going through struggles, he's the one we turn to. He's the one who knows everything. He's the one you just sang about. All of the character qualities, the, the fact that he laid down his life for us to purchase our salvation. Why don't we love him more? And I know I'm not trying to big guilt trips here on Sunday mornings, but that's one that needs to get fixed. Don't profess to be a believer and not be running around showing your ring. There's a wedding date coming up. And so as we look at this passage here, he's trying to focus, he's focusing on Israel, but he's trying to get their attention so that they would have fervor toward him. And then because of that fervor, that passion or that intensity toward God, then we focus on him. That's really what he's after. That's why I create outlines and try to get you to see how the passage is, is coming together here. And so in Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, we read these words, jumping into the middle of a context. He says, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. The only command in the passage is that little word, hear. It carries the idea, it's an imperative that says, listen, give heed, understand. It carries the idea more for us is to discern or to comprehend, O Israel, as he's focusing on his chosen people in the old covenant. But the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Yahweh is Elohim, or the two words he uses there. When you look at this and you realize that the, um, the terms he's using are specific terms, Yahweh means self-existent. When he meets with uh, Moses at the burning bush, he tells him, I am, I am that I am. And he's, he's describing this covenant name that is um, going to connect them with him, but God is self-existent. He is eternal. He is the I am. That's his personal name. But he also throws in here that he is Elohim. This is a plural name. It means that he's strong or the strong one. He's faithful. He's covenant-keeping as well. stands out in this. And this is more of a generic name. Yahweh used over 6,000 times. Elohim used about 2,500 times in the, in the Old Testament. Very special names to the point where the Jews stopped pronouncing it. They didn't have any vowels. They only had four consonants. And they stopped pronouncing the name because they revered it so much that today some people say Yahweh, some people say Jehovah. And Yahweh's probably the better idea behind it. But we won't go into debating that. The issue is that's his name. This is the name where he says Yahweh is our Elohim. And when he brings that out, he's saying the Lord is our God. He is the only God, the true God, the one that I can depend upon the one who keeps that covenant. And with the new covenant, he again it still remains Yahweh. And it comes over and it transfers into Jesus Christ. Some verses in the Old Testament are using the term Yahweh and referring to Jesus Christ in the New Testament when they're quoted. Is there any doubt that Jesus Christ is God? No, not anywhere. And yet you have whole denominations that are built around the idea that he isn't. And they water it down. And they get nowhere. Once you... Put God off the throne, and you deal with this, and you try to wash it down or wash it away. It, it, it changes everything. But he also goes on to say here that the Lord is one. Hero Israel, this is a command to discern this, to bring this in, because they kept getting sidetracked. Their parents were sidetracked, and in, because of it, they died. But he says here, the Lord is one totally unique. He alone is God, the only God, and yet you realize that there's three persons and one God. I can't explain that any more than I can explain gravity. But it's real. It's true. It's emphasized throughout Scripture. And so as he focuses on this point, it's critical to grab this in relation to training your children. To leading your children, you've got to know who God is. They're going to watch your relationship with that one that you are having a love affair with. 
And they're going to determine whether or not they want to follow him as well. And we keep trying to bring them to Sunday school and pour information on them and get them to read the Bible and all these things, and yet we're not living it in front of them. We're not practicing what we preach. And more is caught than taught by young children. And they're going to become like you, Dad. They're going to become like you. Except the things they do that are not like you. I, I have to have a little bit of leeway here. I can't blame everything on me for my children, right? But they are going to become like you. And what I want them to know in my life and what you want them to know as a follower of, of Jesus Christ is that you love him. That he's the most important thing in your life. He takes your time, he takes your money, he takes your energy, he takes everything you have, and he uses it for his glory. Because you're deeply in love with him. And so he's talking about this, this relationship with, and who God is. That's what has to start. I have to have a correct understanding of him. And when you watch our world today and all the religions of the world, they're watering down, watering down. They don't know the true God. The Old Testament was full of idolatry, and Israel kept wandering off to follow after some other god, even to the extent of sacrificing their children to some of those gods like Moloch. And who do we sacrifice them to today? Abortion, euthanasia, I mean, um, infanticide. It's still the same practice. Well, who's the god? Why would I do that? It's the god of my body. I don't want to have a baby yet. I will lose my figure. It's the God of my lifestyle. I don't want a baby coming in because then all of a sudden I have to take responsibility and they're going to take my money and my time and my energies and I've got to have a bigger car. Brian ran away. <laughs> they're going to cost. I thank God for parents that I had that taught me and a mom that loved children. We had five of us siblings and my mom babies had another five for years. So we learned to raise children. We changed diapers. We never spanked them. But we had to give them timeouts. We had to deal with them. I didn't realize what I was learning growing up early on. And a, a mother who wishes she had many more and was unable to have more. Very positive thing in my life. So I turned around and came in to marriage with the desire to have children in God's timing and then to devote my life to them. To give them what was, whatever I had. Especially my relationship with Jesus Christ. So this is what he's trying to bring out initially. This is important. It is critical for the parent to have this relationship. So the first thing I do on my checklist is I ask myself, how am I doing in my walk with the Lord? Do I know him for sure? A lot of religion today, not as much relationship. Do I have a personal relationship with him because I have received that free gift of eternal life? I've trusted Christ as my personal savior because I was a sinner. I deserve to go to hell. Christ paid my sin debt, and I believed and received. And so that's the first thing I want to focus on as I interact with this. And then you realize when you go back to those first, uh, or those Ten Commandments, the first two tell you, one, you shall have no other gods before you. Why is that? Because there's only one true God. There's only one God that exists in the world. The, the first commandment is focused on God's existence. The second commandment tells you not to make any Graven images is the King James, and it's a good way to describe it. It's a physical resemblance. And so he goes from God's existence in number one, that you understand who he is and who he is alone, to God's appearance in number two. Don't start trying to make up things of what he looks like. I've gotten in a lot of trouble over the years. I grew up in our house with a 1941 picture of Jesus in the hallway. I thought that's what he looked like. Some of you had the same picture. I realize that's not Jesus. And someday I'm going to walk up to him and I'm going to go, that's not you. I saw you in the hallway for years. You've changed your hair. You, you've done something. That, that's not how it's going to work. It's going to be the realities of that he is who he is and I don't need to make up some symbol. I went to a church for a while that had it up when I first started there, up in front on the wall. You could see it when you're like right now. You, it would be right up here on the wall. Big picture of Jesus. That's when I finally really got convicted, and I put it away. I put Jesus in the closet. I got in a lot of trouble over that. But Jesus did not come out of the closet. I was kicked out of the church. 
That's not who he is. We're not to pre- pretend like we have some idea what he looks like. You can't make an image of him. He's everywhere present. He knows everything. He, he is so beyond it that even the angels flying around him in Isaiah 6 cover their eyes. Is that the God you are in a, have a love affair with? To worship him, to adore him, to thank him, to enjoy him? Because he became man. He came down on our level. When we see Jesus Christ, he will be in a body, an eternal body that will never go away with the brand marks of the the crucifixion and the arrow in his side and in his ankles. And the reminder will always be there. I did that for you so that you could be with me. Israel, you need to lock on to that. And if that's true, if that's the relationship you have, then you move from that to this commitment in verse 5. He says, you shall love the Lord your God. Not a command. It's a, it's a perfect tense. It's a, it's a completed action. It's just what you ought to be. There shouldn't be any ups and downs in this. But to have this kind of love he's describing here is to attach yourself to him with deep affection and strong loyalty. It's always demonstrated by obedience. This idea of love. In the New Testament, we've described agape as a sacrificial devotion to the Lord. This is bringing out the same idea here. But I'm attached. We go together. Bev and I are coming up on 41, and we, we talk to people that have reached 50 and 60 and 70, and they call us whippersnappers. We have a lot to learn in our relationship. But when we entered in, I made promises I didn't keep, but I made promises that I would never, divorce was never an option, would never come up. We talked about murder often, and, and I promised never to sleep on the couch, and I did that once or twice, fell asleep accidentally one time. But I haven't done that for many years. But you have this attachment, this relationship that is, that is special, and you have to work at it. Sometimes when you don't feel like it, you don't want to be around them. You know what the best thing is? Go give her a hug. What? She wants nothing to do with me. I'm not talking about your mouth flapping or a reminder to her what she did wrong. My wife, when we have a fight, what she wants to know is that everything's okay. Regardless of who started the fight. It's usually her, but, but <laughs> she's not in here, so I, I can't... She can't defend herself today. She may watch this later, though. I could be in trouble. I need somebody's couch. But he's trying to remind us here, you shall love the Lord your God. This, this is that intimate relationship. And he names three things, and they get brought up in the New Testament. Jim shared one of them in Sunday school this morning, out of a couple of different passages, Matthew 22, and a couple other places. But he says, you shall love him with all your heart. And you're kind of looking at this, you're going, well, what's the difference? Aren't these all kind of repeating the same thing? And I don't think so. So I gave you distinct words. I think the one with all your heart is, puts a focus on priority here. The the inner man, your mind, your understanding, your intelligence, this is all purposely attached to him. Total surrender to Jesus Christ. Exclusively focused on him. All my heart. Everything that I'm motivated by, what what drives me, what has some of you starting to struggle right now, because you have stuff you've got to get done before tomorrow. Or you have company coming in, and the house isn't clean. That's important. That's important to be phony and to put on an image that isn't you, right? If it's family, they already know what you're like. But anyway, I better not go down that road too far. <laughs> just, just be real and put the focus on Jesus Christ. This is what he's after here, to, to have that the emphasis be with all your heart. Remember Jeremiah 17, 9, what the basic problem is? Who has that one memorized? Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked, is how King James says it. It's more deceitful than all else. Desperately sick is how the New American Standard says it. Who can understand it? That's the heart of an unbeliever. That's the heart of a newborn child. Remember, we've talked about some of that in recent weeks. They are not born with a blank slate. They are not born holy and the parents mess them up or society messes them up. It's the other way around. They're born with a sin nature. And what salvation does for that sin nature is it takes it away. 
The old man gets crucified in Romans 6.6. 6. You become a new creature in Christ Jesus in 2 Corinthians 5.17. That's, that's the realities of it. That's what you're after. But when does that happen with your children? You wish God would let it happen about six months. Maybe two years when they hit the terrible twos and God takes away that wicked heart. When does it normally happen? 25. So you, you bear a lot of that interaction and, and you're working with someone who is distorted. Their, their heart is desperately sick. And we get all frustrated because we can't control them. We can't mold them into what we want them to be. We, we can't manipulate them. They embarrass us when we get in public. And so this is where the whole thing we discussed earlier comes in with spanking. The world says don't do it. God says if you don't do it, you don't love your child. So that's why I don't hide from the idea. They may come arrest me one of these days. It's getting worse and worse. Or I can retire first and I'll run. But, but whatever it may be, there's a need here. I put it on your tear-off. Some of you turned those in. Uh, I'm always trying to fill space with scriptures, what I'm after. But spanking is absolutely necessary. And what I'm finding a lot today is a lot of parents want to reason with foolishness. They want to reason with a three-year-old. They don't have a new nature yet. I can't tell you for sure when they're going to get saved and when they're really going to change. And I've been asked, well, how do you know when they're really saved? You don't. There isn't enough coming out of a small child for you to really see it. How do I know you're saved? I watch. When I see tests come into your life and how you respond to them, I don't mean it instantaneously. You may have a meltdown for a moment, but then you come back around because the Holy Spirit's working with you to bring you back into line and to trust Him and to relax. How do you think Abraham felt last week when God said, oh, I'll take your only son, the, the promised one, the one of the covenant, you know, where you're going to have all this generation like the sand of the sea and the stars of the sky. Go kill him. Offer him up to me as an opportunity of worship. You don't think Abraham wrestled with that a little bit? But he told you the secret. And the whole thing of the idea that he loved the Lord his God. He knew Yahweh. He knew him as Elohim. He had that connection. Some of you feel like doing that, don't you? Sometimes in the middle of my messages, the most enjoyable thing you could do is just cry. And wish somebody pick you up and walk you out. You know, but you don't get that because you're too old now. But he's trying to wrestle with this issue to make sure that we understand that we cannot reason with foolishness. We spank foolishness. And we explained that a few weeks ago. It's an open defiance. It's not a childishness. You don't spank children for, for living appropriately to their age. And the spanking is never a beating. But removing foolishness is critically necessary. It's commanded by God, and it's necessary for every child. I bind them into parents once in a while, and they go, well, my child never needed a spank. <laughs> Should I close in prayer? <laughs> Spanking is critical. Every child has a sin nature. Every child is going to defy you. Some of them don't do it quite the same like some of my children. <laughs> but they'll, they'll defy you sometimes with a look. Sometimes it's with a hesitancy to obey. Remember we talked about first-time obedience? Teach them to obey instantly. It's not a one, two, three option. You understand God does that? That's how he treats us. God never sits there and goes, oh no, they're, they're getting stubborn again. What do I do? No counting. God instantly deals with his children. But what you have in a lot of situations in Scripture aren't his children. And people kind of try to figure out why didn't he do something. But, but the spanking is not magical. It's not easy. It's not instantaneous. But it's not impossible. And when God says to do it, you want to deal with it quickly. You want to have a pattern that your children get used to you. They know exactly what to expect. I expect, expected near death with my dad. I had no trouble learning first time obedience. What do they expect from you? Mom doesn't really mean it. Dad's not here, so I can get away with it. She, when she gets this loud, then I better jump. 
When we say something, when God gives a command, is he kind of going, well, this is a, the ten suggestions. If you feel like it, if you're having a good week, then, then by all means, keep them. But if you don't feel like it, if it's just a little rough, your parents aren't worth honoring, or you see something you really want to covet bad, it's okay. I understand those weeks. That's not what God's saying. It's black and white. It's always the same. And it's always for our best. And this is what parents need to be doing and what we have to work on. So he's, he's interacting with the parents. He's telling them to be committed with all your heart, with all your soul. This is the center of our personality. This is where our passions come from. The feelings that drom- dominate our lives. This is where we practice what we preach. This is where our children really are listening to us. If they get up every morning and you're a morning person and they see you every single day, like my wife talks about with her dad, reading his Bible. It's just what he did in the morning. Was he perfect? No. But it was a pattern. It was a pattern that my wife realized that's important to my dad. He makes time at the kitchen table every day before anybody else gets up. What do our children see? What are we really preaching by our lifestyles? And how does God want to make us more like Christ so they can have a better sermon? But with all your heart, with all your soul, and then with all your might, this is the idea of your power, that the physical strength of your life, your human efforts, need to all be aimed toward loving God. Pretty simple. Pretty straightforward, isn't it? I don't think that's complicated. I make things complicated, but these verses are not complicated. Listen up, Israel discern, comprehend, understand who God is and love him with everything you've got. And so he moves to with this um, priority and this passion and this power. Ultimately, what we're after, as I mentioned, is to lead them to Christ. This is what I am committed to, the salvation of my children. I share the gospel. I share it often. I share it after they have professed faith. I don't know what really went on inside. Sometimes it's a, you know, you get in a classroom like they're in there now and they'll say, how many kids want some candy? All their hands go up. How many kids would like for me to read to you today? All their hands go up. How many of you children would like to receive Jesus? All their hands go up. It's just what children do. So you don't really know for sure what's going on. It's kind of a herd mentality. So I've had people ask me, what what do I do with that? How do I make sure that this is clear? And it's really hard to discern their faith and confirm their salvation, so it takes time. It's, it's a challenge on my part to help them to grow, to hold them accountable. I got up early in the morning. I, my dad had never done anything. The closest my dad ever did for me was take us to church pretty regularly and put a Bible on the coffee table that I eventually, as a 16, 17-year-old, finally started asking questions about and opened it up one day, and that was it took off in my life. My dad didn't give me a lot. He didn't sit down with us. So when when they were in high school, I finally went, look, I got to do something. So the three younger ones are in high school. We're getting up at 6 or 6.30. I don't know what time it was in the morning. And I just tried to read to them. What would you think the level of interest was? We listen to you every Sunday, whether we like it or not. I was just trying to make sure they understood this is important. And I've told you that about a lot of areas in my life. I realized my children never really understand my, my giving because we kept it very private. We did not want them broadcasting that with other people. And there's a number of things that got left out. So I'm starting to share stuff with them. Some of them are kind of sitting there. I see their eyes get really big. Are you supposed to tell me that? But I'm trying to pass on stuff before I'm gone. My goal in life, if it was possible, I'd give half or more away. I would love to be a Laterno who built the whole caterpillar, caterpillar um, huge ship uh, machinery company. And, and he got up to 90%. He kept building it and building it and building it. And God kept blessing him. So he kept giving it away. And he lived very high on the hog with 10% of what was coming in. See, we don't trust God enough. We're afraid to hand out something that we go, I don't know if I want to get it back. And I've told you many times, and my lesson was in, in um, Bible college, when I had not 
um, taking care of a lot of needs. I didn't have a lot of money. And I finally, I got a $25 money order from Wells Fargo Bank on a Friday. I hadn't washed my clothes in weeks, except in the sink. I did the best I could. And I went, I've got to wash. And it, somebody shared something with me and said, you need to love God first. They didn't tell me to give that away or anything. And I said, yep, I'm behind. So I cashed it and put it in the offering Sunday. All of it. And what showed up on Monday? A $25 money order. From what bank? Wells Fargo. From people that never gave to me before and never gave to me again. And it's like God goes, okay, let's try this again. Now that I know you love me, now go wash your clothes because you stink. <laughs> and take care of some other needs that you had. But, and I gave money out of that. I, I got on track and that I have had no trouble since then. I love to give. But you have to be discerning. And, but my children don't learn from that. They don't learn from a check that I forgot to put in the offering and don't, don't count everything until I put it in there. <laughs> they don't know what I'm doing. So I have to start sharing more with them. And I don't want it to come across in a way of bragging, but I need to lead my children toward righteousness. They've made professions of faith five out of six that I know of. And so they are constantly working and growing in that. But he, he goes from this fervor that we need to have, that we need to share. We're modeling that, teaching it, and at times with the paddle enforcing it when they're young. Um, like we said, if, if you are properly and consistently and lovingly disciplining your children, you probably do not need to spank much past about the age of five. And people go, no way. Yep. If you have made your point by five, you've done something wrong. If they don't recognize that you love them and recognize why, as we talked about, you take time, you use a paddle, use something that isn't... It's not that you can't spank with the hands. I got a great question one Sunday morning. It's not that you can't spank with the hand, but what the, the, the rod does is it forces you to go get it and to take them to a secluded place because it's just between you and them. And you're, you're not trying to embarrass them, I hope. You don't like being embarrassed when God spanks you. You want to spank you in front of the whole church? So you find a private place, you interact with them, you let them know what they did wrong, and the fact that they were defiant, and that they knew better, and they did it anyway, that's, that's where foolishness comes in. And you spank them. And as far as I remember, uh, for me, it was, it was one swat was sufficient. I was a, a good shot, a good aim. And I made sure, not never on bare skin, but always on a spot where it stung. And it got their attention because that's what I'm trying to get, is their full attention. And you realize that this is wrong. And then it ended with, typically, again, I'm not saying it was all the time, because I don't remember. I honestly don't remember. I hated it. I cried after some of the spankings, but not in front of them. But I tried to hug them, give them time to think about it. If they, if they were still defiant, that was a hard thing. And I think that's where I failed with some of my children. I didn't reach them, and they still were being foolish. But that's another story. You give them time. Tell them when you're ready, you come out. But we're coming out to a new world. I'm not bringing it up again. Hopefully. I shouldn't. And then he moves on to this whole thing. If I really love them, here's how, as an adult, I'm going to focus my life. But there's leading required in all of this. Look at verse 6. He says, these words, what words is he talking about? What divine message or divine truths is he trying to convey here? That these words which I am commanding you today, this day, the, the idea he's saying is I'm commanding you, um, it's an ongoing idea. When you look up this day, it's continual, it's daily is kind of what he's trying to say here. I'm going to keep commanding it, commanding it, commanding it. These words don't just refer back to the Ten Commandments in chapter 5. He's going to give them a whole bunch of information as he goes on. But I'm commanding you, I'm not asking you. Too many parents are sitting there with little, I keep bringing up names that I don't want to use. Um, Matilda. I don't have any Matildas here today. And, and you say, please, Matilda, would, would you just obey? Matilda goes, oh, you're giving me an option. Well, right now, I have a sin nature. And I don't feel like it. So as long as I have an option, no, I'm not going to obey. Oh, I'm so disappointed. And parents manipulate and they try to work their children all different which ways. 
I didn't do that with my children. I hope they realize I was fairly consistent. Wasn't perfect. And I didn't beat them to death. Most of the time. But it was, draw a line. You're, you're not asking. You're telling them. You're leading your children. Isn't that what this message is? The title was up there, I think. You're, you're leading them. You're the one who's supposed to be draw, taking them toward Christ's likeness, toward a relationship with the one you love. And so he says, these words, this divine communication, which I am commanding you, and it's a PL form, which means it is intensive. It's an intensive charge, an intensive order here. Continually shall be on your heart. The first thing he says to them. It's continually abiding and continuing as a habit, a custom, a practice of your lives. If you look up online with that paper that Pat always uses um, with sermon audio, I put down here five descriptions, and I labeled this first one to saturate the habits of our hearts with deep conviction. You start with where you're at with God and God's Word. You take it in. You make it your own. You recognize the importance of it. That's what he's telling them. See, everybody wants to know all the specifics. Exactly how do I raise my children? You raise them by you loving God. And specifically here, by taking in his word and letting it saturate your heart to where it becomes a habit of your life. You don't even hesitate about it. You don't even want to go into the day without spending some time with the Lord. Unless you're a night person. Then you don't even want to go to bed without spending some time with the Lord. Not that you can't read it during the day. Many people see me as a freak. Thank you very much. (laughs) I come across weird in a lot of ways. I don't think I'm weird. I told you I never wanted to be a pastor. I told you when God asked for pastors, everybody, instead of me taking a step forward, they all took a step back and left me standing out there. I went to Bible college. I just want to learn the Bible. Always behind, always playing catch-up. Didn't grow up in a great church that really helped me along. And it split, and I was out of it for five years even. But as, as I went through all of that, I realized when I was a senior, I finally submitted myself to God and said, if you want me to be a pastor, I hope not, I will be my senior year at Multnomah. But then I went in and became a youth pastor for a few years. Learned all the things that the parents hadn't done right with their children. You try to work alongside them to correct some of that. And then it was off the seminary because I knew I really wanted to be a senior pastor. But I saturated the habits of my heart with deep convictions. I wanted to learn the word accurately. 2 Timothy 2.15. Are you doing that? Hopefully you've picked up some of that with me if you've been here for a while. Like a few years, if not a few decades. Read your Bibles is something that I have stressed over and over again. But as I watch and listen and, and learn, oftentimes I too, as a shepherd, am disappointed at what people are not doing with the Lord. And again, I get into a lot of specifics, but that's between you and and God as far as specifically what you're doing and not doing, not regarding sin, but regarding attendance or interactions or leadership where you step up or even the mission field. That you're, the, the whole thing is I'm willing to serve God no matter what. So when he brings cancer along, in my case, it was like, that didn't change anything, except I was ready to go home and I was excited. He goes, no, 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 no. After 10 years of this, I'm realizing, no, I didn't want to kill you. I wanted to use you, and so I've, I've provided opportunities. And he does that in our lives. And how do you respond when he brings in something unexpected? Do you trust him? Do you know that he's good because you've spent time reading his word? You've watched how he's treated people from Adam and Eve to Cain to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Noah, Moses, David. Did they all have easy times in their lives? No. Nowhere near. And then God brings in these tests. It's like, why do I need a test? Why do I have to go kill my son? Because I want to check your faith. And when we go to the New Testament, we realize that's when God knew that Abraham really believed. When he was willing to give up the most prized possession in his life. And so instead of us standing there going, why are you doing this to me? 
Why don't you hear that still small voice where God is saying, why don't you trust me? I have your best interest in mind. Abraham even said, I know he has the ability to raise him from the dead. What am I worried about? And so as he zeroes in on this, he's the first one is saturate the habits of our hearts with deep convictions. This is the idea to um, having God, having um, these truths abide or remain or continue on your heart. Then he also says, secondly, um, to the idea of sharpen here, you probably would, why is that word there? You shall teach them diligently. Literally, this word for teach here is the word to sharpen or to hone. It's the idea to use a whetstone and to put an edge on a knife. That's what this word is. This is what it means that you're teaching. You're preparing your children for service. You're preparing them to be a utensil that God can use to the best of his ability. Because we are sharp. That's literally what's going in here. To, um, to sharpen or to hone. And so he says it, though, to do it diligently. This is incisively. Until they are keenly alert mentally. Until they have the sharpest edge possible on them is what you're after. Until you reach that point, you're not done. So sometimes with our children, we kind of settle for, uh, they're not killing anybody. And uh, I don't have to go bail them out of jail, so I guess I've done my thing. That's not what this is saying. This is to the extreme. It's your children in general. It's just to your sons, but it, in this case, it's used as a general idea. We want them to learn so many insignificant things today. We'll put all of our efforts into academics and sports and music and making money. And when they get out there, they're empty because you left out the most valuable thing in the universe. God himself. I told you when I was going off to, to Bible college, I had a, a friend of my parents that was a builder, and he says, why don't you come work with me, build, earn enough money to, to buy your own house, get situated, then go off to Bible college. Because that's not what's important to me. Now, if you know me, you know that I've done a lot of building. I grew up with builders. I helped build this building. I, I learned a lot, but when we moved here and came to Lapine, we came here for ministry, missionaries to the freezer is what I call it. And in three weeks, we went, we're looking around, we're saying we're never going to own a house. I'd given that up. House prices were too high in California. Now we're up here. We, we've given it up. We, we literally said, okay, God, it's all right. We're going to rent. But we had people in the church that we were moving into at the time, and they said, no, 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 you need to check. Market's down, 1986, they were at the bottom of a, a downturn. And the lady, we put in an offer on a house, and um, it was $40,000 for a three-bedroom, one-bath, stick-frame house in Lapine. And we put in an offer for 30000 because it had been sitting on the market for six months. And we're sitting there going, this, they're never going to accept that. We found out because it was ODVA, it was Oregon Department of Veterans Affairs, that they had to take each bid independently and act on it or not act on it. And so our bid got in the, the, on a Wednesday, on Friday, and they, gave, they sold the house to us on Thursday. On Friday, a new bid came in that was higher. They, they couldn't do anything with that, just how the laws worked. And the lady said, this will not take place for at least six weeks, and it's probably going to take months. In three weeks, we walked into our house, our own house, and I remember my wife, Bev, walked in, grabbed the orange wallpaper, and tore it off the wall. <laughs> good thing they didn't use a lot of sizing. It didn't stick very good. Ugly. But we're sitting there going, God says, you put me first. I take care of all the other things. But if you make those other things first and you leave me out, you're not only going to suffer yourselves, your children are going to suffer. And if you go on to read Deuteronomy in the context, he starts giving them warnings in chapter 7 because they're going to move into a new land. Remember why they were wandering in the wilderness? Waiting for their parents to die. They're going to go into this new land and he warns them. When I hand over houses, vineyards, orchards, whatever it may be to you, don't forget me. How well did Israel do? They forgot him. How are we doing today? Always trying to get up the ladder, not satisfied with what we have, always something bigger and better, and usually something that takes more of our time. God says, love me. I will take care of you. Who do you think invented pleasure in the first place? What does he say in Psalm 16, 7? At my right hand are 
Pleasures forevermore. God understands pleasure. God made sex. If you want to start looking at things, you kind of go, oh, you know, God didn't leave any of that out. But I can't trust him. I've got to hang on. I've got to do it for myself. I've got to make it happen. And he says, no, it's the other way around. You've got to trust in me. And so this idea of sharpening here, of honing your children to be like a, a sharp edge on a knife, I put down here to sharpen the understanding of your children with biblical considerations, constantly put in before them, because it's before me, who God is, what God wants, what's going to be best in your life, how you can trust him and raise them up in the right way. And so he zeroes in on this with the third one. He says, you shall talk of them. When you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. And again, just to cover these quickly, the idea of talking of them here is another PL, perfect, intensified. This really should be an effort on your part. You shall purposely be talking of them, speaking, discussing, bringing up God every opportunity you have, and rejoicing in Him, and, but living it out, not as a hypocrite. Your children will turn as fast as possible if what you're saying with your mouth isn't what you're living with your life. Children hate hypocrisy. Adults tolerate it because we do it so often to each other. How are you feeling today? Fine. What was your week like? Eh, good. Even though you start naming all the things that went wrong. We, we, we're not honest. And it's not like we have to be. But when somebody asks how you're doing, you need to turn to them and say, how long do you have? How honest do you want me to be? Will you pray for me because I have some things I have to share? And, and they said, nah, I only had two minutes. I really wasn't asking that. Okay, ask me next week when you got more time. Superficial relationships. That's not an intimate relationship with, that we're supposed to have with God. And that shouldn't be how we have it with each other. That isn't how churches are supposed to be. You show up to do this job or that job, you expect a little bit of praise and recognition, and you move on. That's not church. But that's another whole message too. So he's talking here. When you sit is the idea of when you inhabit or live in your house. This is family dwelling, the property that you have. It's talking about the usual activities around your home. Chores, play, leisure, whatever you have to be doing around there. Whenever that's going on in your life or going on, he says that's when you should be talking. I brought that up a few weeks ago. I learned late, but I was trying to figure out how to get my children to realize you pray when you're in the garage. You pray when you're in the backyard on the swing set. You just stop and thank God for whatever's going on. You make him a regular part of your life, and guess what your children will pick up? He's real. He's a regular part of my life. And when he gives me things, I thank him for him right there. And I don't mean a flippant, thank you, God, thank you, God, thank you, God. But to take the time here, as he's describing, to talk to your children. Did you see what God just did for us? When the swing set broke a couple weeks ago and Quincy was on it. And he kind of landed a little awkwardly. Didn't break anything. And I have yet to go out there and fix it. I keep trying to get out there. I bought the parts. But, but when that happens, did you see what God just did for you? You didn't break anything. Except you broke my swing set. That thing's dangerous to begin with. But, but it's a, to constantly be bringing it back and rec recognizing what God's doing. When you're in your house, he says, when you walk, by the way, this is more your social life. When you walk is to travel, to journey. By the way, is wherever you go in the course of life, these usual activities around your community, going to the store, going to church, going to school if, you, if you're part of that, or to the homeschoolers, or whatever you're doing, you're constantly talking about God. You're bringing up Scripture, and you're not aiming at them. You're not simply trying to cram it down their throats. You're enjoying your relationship with God, and they pick up on that. You feel guilty yet? You shouldn't. The Holy Spirit provides all of this for us. We just have to say yes. Walk by the Spirit. He says at the end of the day, when you lie down, this would involve sleep, relaxation. This involves sex. And literally in the, in the Hebrew um, concordance, the, the, the idea of whatever I'm doing when I'm laying down and any kind of recuperation is what he's zeroing in on. But these are special activities at home when I'm getting ready at the end of the day. 
But then he goes on to the beginning of the day. When you rise up, when you get up in the morning from a nap after sitting, whatever it may be, but these are also special activities at home. But it may be things like getting ready for work, but it's more to be active where the other one is to be passive. He's trying to make a point. He's going out of his way to make sure you understand this is a lifestyle you have. Just like you had when you were first engaged with Prince Charming, who turned out to be a frog. You're right. Green. With gills. Do frogs have gills? No. So he's still a, a tadpole. He, he just has all kinds of problems. But, but as you're interacting, you realize, I thought I married the perfect man. And unlike most men, remember how I keep telling you I'm perfect, right? And you know I am not perfect, not telling the truth, lying. What was the other a couple of other choices out there? We, we're all growing and we all interact and we all have opportunities. I had my wife do something this morning and then I came back out to apologize to her because her shoulder is still bothering her. And I went, that hurt, didn't it? She, yeah, yeah, a little bit. But she goes, I figured out how to get around it. And I said, I'm sorry. I totally spaced it when I asked you to do something while I was jumping in the shower. And it was just a three-minute thing. But it was like, that was unthoughtful of me. And so you constantly are trying to be aware of what's going on around. And this is a lifestyle. So when I wrap this one up for share, it's to share the truth of the scriptures with frequent conversations. It just comes up in life. It's like popcorn prayer. It's popcorn sermons. You're saying, I, you may be saying to me, I can't do this. And there's only one reason why you can't do this. Because you do not know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. And that's true. If that's the case, you can't do it. You will not be able to be somebody that Christ has not already turned you into. You don't have a new nature. You don't have any inkling whatsoever to be this way. All we give is God is excuses. I had lots of excuses why I wasn't going to be a pastor. My biggest one was that I didn't tell jokes very well. Every pastor I knew as a kid, they'd always stand in the pulpit. Half of their sermons were jokes. And I thought that's what you're supposed to do when you're a pastor. Finally in seminary, I even dumped what they were trying to teach me there. And I said, look, i got to be myself. Use some of the principles, but... But what I'm after here isn't for you to be impressed with me. It's to be a messenger. I am required in Ephesians 4.11 to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. That's all I'm there for. I'm a facilitator to bring you along and help you understand what the Bible's actually saying. You have to decide what you're going to do with that information. And this is what he's trying to zero on with them here. To share the truth of the scriptures with frequent conversations. It's coming up every which way. Home life, social life, end of day, beginning of day, it just shows up. He moves down to a fifth one and he says, serve. And again, you look at this, you go, what does that have to do with you shall bind them? It, it kind of doesn't really make a whole lot of sense at that point. And what he's talking about here is the idea of binding is to join something together, to make it work as one. So you're going to serve them as a sign, as a memorial, as a reminder, this personal remembrance on your hand so as you work and you hit your thumb with a hammer, how do you respond? Okay, that'd be nice. But your thumb is not screaming at you right now. What's inside is what's going to come out. <laughs> Plenty of blood, and I've seen it many times in construction. But what comes out of my mouth that my children find out? How does dad respond to pain? We come up with our own little phrases of what we say, or we do this funny little dance, whatever it may be, try to stop the bleeding, get the thing up above my heart, whatever it is, but they're watching all the time. I don't think any of my children, I know they don't because I never taught it to them. They never learned to swear from me because of pain. But my dad was the same way. I heard him swear when I was really little, and then it went away. And he used some words I went, Am I allowed to use that word? They didn't think so. It wasn't a real bad one, kind of a mediocre one, but, but I started realizing, nope, that went away, that went away. My dad didn't talk like that. I didn't learn to talk that way, except for my friends. And as I've shared with you before, I've stood in the bathroom in front of the mirror cursing out my dad, but two or three times I'll ever remember. And then I realized that wasn't right. 
And so I had to deal with that. And so when you have these situations and with your hands, it's, it's a reminder to me, the, the motions of my work, and he says as frontals, these literally are like bands, like, like you're going to put handkerchiefs around your, your forehead. It's one of the terms used in the, in the book of Revelation for crowns. People think when they see the word crown, it always means some kind of a diadem with, with jewels and made out of metal. No, the, the Stephanos is more of a band that went around your head. And so when you got multiple Stephanoses, you got layers. Kind of went from private to corporal to sergeant, according to what was showing on your forehead. And it's the same thing here. He wants them to, to stand out as to what they pick up and what is in your mind. These are both used symbolically here. They're figurative. They're not literal. The, the lexicon in a number of places went out of their way to tell us that. So what are the Jews doing today? If you've seen an Orthodox Jew, you'll see them wear a little box made out of leather with straps on it, and they wear it on their forehead. They made that up. That's not what God meant. I was on a plane one time flying to Israel. So there were a lot of Jews on the plane. And I, saw, I remember this one man in particular, just a few rows up, and he went out of his way with that box on his head and doing his, his things because we flew all night. But he constantly kept looking at me. Notice me. Notice me. Notice me. I, I kept wondering, why are you looking at me? I'm in the back. I mean, I can't help but notice you. You're... <laughs> But, but it's like, he, this was, to me, it was just a rote thing. It, it didn't mean a lot. It's what, I, what it declared, I'm a Jew, and this is what I do. And I have nothing with the Jews. You better bless Israel, because God told us to. But this is what they turned it into. They started wearing, they also wear a little thing on their hand. And they put scripture verses in it. What good is that? Put them in your brain. Not on the outside. But they were to serve as a reminder. You're, you're binding them to, to serve your children so they can see this. To serve in the work of our lives with delightful contemplation. What we focus on, what we talk about, what dominates our lives. Psalm 1, our children learn Psalm 1. I don't know if they still remember it. Blessed is a man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in this law, he meditates day and night. That's what this is talking about. Why is it the first psalm? Because it's really important. It's a priority. And he puts it right up front there. If you know God's word and you're meditating on God's word and you're letting it control your life, everything else will fall into place. So you serve your children in this way, in the work of our lives with delightful contemplation. It's what we're dwelling on. How perfect was I in that area? Not very. I, sometimes I thought I was Italian. By the way, we fought growing up, knocked down drag outs. And, and a lot of people around here even are shocked at me because I'm so verbal. I don't hide stuff. I interact. Well, I got a problem? You're going to know about it. I don't justify that. I'm just telling you that that's the natural side of me, and I have to be careful with it. I don't throw plates or whatever else the... Italians do. And I'm not trying to stereotype. It's not an Italian thing. It's a human thing. But I was raised, by example, in my home, wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning and knock down drag out. I mean, screaming at the top of their lungs. My mom and my dad at each other. You wake up and you go, oh, you woke me up. And then you think, that's normal. Can't wait to get married. <laughs> and then I married a woman who won't fight at all. That's not fair. Put the boxing gloves on. Let's get this over with. Nope, not fighting. I've taught her a few jabs, a few moves. But she still isn't a fighter. She does not like confrontation. You're working all this out. In the meantime, your children are watching. And they, my children think I'm Italian. My hands. My nose. My mouth. We're not perfect, folks. We just need to help them, let them know we love God and that I am eagerly looking forward to changing, regularly walking on the treadmill when I get a chance and listening to, to Christian music or to Scripture in song, and it, it impacts me. Sometimes I have trouble walking because God reminds me of what He's done for me. I don't take that lightly. I don't water that down. I've never gotten over my salvation. 
even though it happened at a very early age. And it's what God wants us to do with our children. So they see these activities in our lives. And the last one is, is the signal here. He says, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when you look at this more closely, you realize writing them is the idea of inscribing, recording. It's a public display where the other one's more of a private uh, relationship in the family. But, but he's going out of his way here when he says on the doorposts of your house, this is out front for people to see when they walk up, publicly pick up. It's the doorpost or the gatepost. It's the entrance. And you remind me of that little song, let it shine. So we've put scripture up in the house. And every once in a while I stop because it becomes routine. And I just stop and walk around reading the verses that are there. I don't want them to become old hat and just acceptable. I want them to mean something. But this almost implies that they went out and put it on their doorposts. What verse would you put out on the front of your house? Doesn't have to be real big. You're not trying to irritate your neighbors. But, but you're trying to make a message. Your children realize, this is what I want people to think of me. But he says it's on the doorposts of your house. And then the second one, on the gates of your city, is the emphasis. When you look up this idea of gates here, it's talking about the city gates. These public openings, access for business, for court, for meetings, for justice. It's a signal that gets sent out. It guides your practices. It tells people what you stand for. And what do we do when we go places? I went to jury duty one day. I felt really bad because there was a couple of police officers who had to come in, testify. They were actually sheriff's deputies. And um, the lady changed her whole, her whole case. Denied anything ever happened. The poor guy's standing there going, you could see the years ago. You could just see him standing there like, what happened who got to her? He'd beat her up bad. We knew that, but you can't act on that as a juror. But here I am. I went in and I go, I'm going to sit for hours. So I took my Bible. My Bible is not a little Bible. It's because I like the Tonson chain reference. It's not marked up. It doesn't have anything on the outside. But the guy, I thought, surely they're going to kick me off jury duty. They're not going to want a preacher to come in there. That's exactly what the guy wanted. And the question he asked, he wanted to know if I was a black and white kind of person because he realized what the evidence was going to say and then I'd have to rule on the evidence. I couldn't play games with it. So I got put on that jury. And I was one of the lone holdouts, feeling like, my son feels at times, we're letting the guy off the hook. She's already testified. It's already in writing. It's right there. But now she says it never happened, so it's over. And I have to keep turning back to verse 4. To the God, Yahweh Elohim, who's going to rule and who is just and will carry out. And what I start feeling toward people is sorry for them. Because the world won't deal with your sin. The world won't incarcerate you for what you did. The world won't stop you from beating up somebody. God, you're going to stand before God someday and his justice is eternal. You need to learn your lessons. That's why you spank your children. You're trying to cut them off from ever getting to a bad place with authority. And they say, well, we love them. And now they're emptying the jails and they're emptying everything around us. And it's the opposite of love. What it is saying is, I don't want to be put in jail and I've done the same things they've done. Too many politicians a day. So let's just make everybody free. Let's just pretend there is no sin. There is no crime. Bad place to be because God will not overlook it. It helps me to feel sorry for them, to have compassion, to pray for them, but it's not helping them at all. And so he's, this last one here, you signal the eyes of the world with heavenly communications. You're constantly passing this on. And all five of these, saturating, sharpening, sharing, serving, signaling, is for your children. That's how you are leading them, by example. That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Now you're going to go home this week and be perfect, Right? Just like two kids I had in, in, um, camp, at camp one day. They wouldn't stop fighting. I mean, physically, going at it. And one was kind of a mouthy kid, athletic. The other one was a kind of a chubby kid, and that's part of what he was picking on, but bigger. So when they went at it, it was a pretty even match. And they were swinging blows, swinging blows. And I'm the camp counselor, and it's like, great. I get to babysit. So I first took them out and made them pick up paper for a while. I'd just isolate them. I sat there. I interacted with them. I shared with them what they were doing wrong. I tried to help them. 
That wasn't going anywhere. So then God reminded me, make them memorize Scripture. So I gave them a couple verses to memorize about anger and fighting, contention, out of the book of Proverbs. The one kid, instantly convicted. That was it. No more fights, because that was early on in the week that we were there. No more fights at all. He recognized that it was wrong, what I was doing. Changed his mind. The other one was still kind of smart alecky, but there's nobody to fight, so it, it ended. But it, it amazed me. And so we, we underestimate, we, we undervalue the, 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 the scriptures. These words that I'm commanding you today, we don't pass them on. We don't share them, and we can't tell our children to memorize them if we're not memorizing them. Because what are they going to say? Not important to dad. Not important to me. Are you leading your children? You probably never thought I was going to go the way I went with this series. This is how they turn out right. Because you love God, they will follow your example. Not foolproof, but they will follow your example. They won't be able to call you a hypocrite. They will at least respect you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for being the perfect Heavenly Father. I thank you for requiring first-time obedience. I thank you, like Hebrews 12 says, that you spank us. 1 Corinthians 11, the Corinthians had some serious problems in their church. Weary or weak. Some were sick. Some were dead. Because you don't play games. I ask you to help us today. If we know you, each one here, only they know for sure. But if they know you, Father, that they will submit to you, that they will take one area that they're struggling with and hide your, your word, your scriptures in their hearts, treasure it up, share it with others, be accountable, and let you change that area. But if there be some here, Father, who don't know you, that still are struggling because they have a sin nature, no desire to follow after you, that they'd realize that the answer, the answer to our world today is Jesus Christ. The answer to our personal lives all of our struggles, our anxieties. It's Jesus Christ. If somebody's listening to me online, that they would receive that free gift of eternal life. Your son died on the cross for our sins and he rose again for our justification. He paid the price. He is our substitute. But we have to say, yes, I want that payment to be applied to me. May each one, listening to me right now, receive you and find the answers to life in their futures. Thank you, Father, for being perfect. Thank you for never being a hypocrite. Thank you that your word is true and you keep your promises. You're the only one we can trust, ultimately. Use us for your glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.